Welcome to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. Here are your hosts, Alex Kingsbury and Danny Piper. Hello, everyone. My name is Alex Kingsbury and welcome to episode four of the Printing Money podcast. With me today is my ever steady co-host, Danny Piper. Hello, Danny. Hey, Alex. And Good to be back joining, on again. Joining us today is another special guest because the last episode went so well and we decided we loved having an extra person on for some perspective. Who have we got today, Danny? We've got Arno held on from A Adventures, and this is going to be a special episode. I think the one thing that I can say is Arno gets to see more things in 3D printing on the seed and Series A stage than anybody else. A Adventures is sort of the kind of the, the most prominent fund in the early stage of 3D printing, and so there are some very unique perspectives. So I kind of want to introduce uh, Arno here. We, we met, gosh, I want to say back in 2017 timeframe, working on a, a deal called Morph 3D back in the day. And since that time, I think we've stayed in touch and uh, I've just always uh, enjoyed really your story and really how AM Ventures has just got this unique seat at the table. So Arno, if you could, why don't uh, you do a quick intro on yourself and your background before we jump into the adventure side? Sure, with big pleasure. Thanks a lot, uh, Alex, Danny. Thanks a lot for having me. It's a really big honor being part of this show. Um, yeah, as you said, um, my name is Arno. Arno Held. I, today, I'm managing partner of uh, 100 million venture capital fund that is focused only on early stage 3D printing companies. Um, but my time in this industry and in industrial hardware technology goes a little bit further back. My background is um, industrial laser applications and hardware technology. I was trained as a field service engineer with Trumpf 25 years ago. I, I started my apprenticeship um, on the assembly lines uh, in the Stuttgart area, learning how to build and maintain and, and repair light as a tool. Um, which somehow triggered my passion for, for industrial machinery. I studied industrial engineering and uh, also did an MBA at a Swiss business school, um, joined the additive manufacturing industry in 2007 uh, with EOS, first in the R&D department, then as an executive assistant. I was um, part of the team that built EOS's strategy and business development department. I, I saw the company grow from a just a little bit under 200 people and 55 million top line to more than a thousand and, and more than 200 uh, million euros in top line. Um, so witnessed some some really exciting dynamics. Um, and at some point I got also hooked on on the startup culture. I think probably the very first time that I that I met a startup in our industry was when I visited the uh, Philips incubator in Eindhoven to meet a uh, Three people founder team that uh, built Shapeways. Marlene Fogler, uh, Robert Schaumberg, and, and Pete Weimershausen were asking EOS for a special business model to always have enough machines in place to satisfy the customer demand without having to pay for the machines. So I was part of the team that, that helped them to, to build the business model and um, was fortunate enough to, to witness really crazy dynamic. So the company went from three people in an incubator to EOS's largest customer within three years with a global installed basis of more than 25 machines. And I realized that's what I want to do. That's that's where I want to be at some point uh, to build a startup and to 
to to grow companies and I think that's well, in a way, you, you sort of have built a startup. When I think about AM Ventures and the progression, let's talk about that for a moment. I mean, thinking back where we were in 2017 and our first discussions and where AM Ventures was in that iteration, maybe you could talk real quickly sort of how things transitioned from working sort of as the private investment arm, really, of the Longer family in EOS into a fully committed fund. Because I know that's a you know a, a big step in itself, and then you know maybe give us that background. You already said it. Aim Ventures started off uh, back the end of 2014, early 2015 as some sort of family office of the Langer family, uh, the family who still owns and runs EOS today. Um, we did a couple of really good investments very early stage into hardware companies such as Lithos, uh, that is processing ceramics. Um, Cubicure um, processing um, uh, hot lithography materials or um, Dimension, for example, that is offering coloring technology. Um, I think we did a couple of really, really good picks. We selected great individuals and, and, and great teams. Um, didn't lose a single investment. So over time, that gets, uh, as a single uh, investor very challenging in terms of providing enough capital for the next growth phase. So the, the natural consequence um, at some point in time was let's make this a little bit bigger. Let's let's uh, turn AIM Ventures into a proper multi-LP venture capital fund. And um, the timing was a little bit, let's say, um, interesting. Um, I started to raise the fund right at the start of covid with uh, global lock lockdowns and, and travel bans. So I think the first couple of pitches I did completely remotely without having met the founders, uh, the, the, the investors. But in the end, it turned out well. Within two years, we could close initially close the fund. We conducted our final close uh, last year in, in March um, at the hard cap of 100 million. And today we are a team of 10 people. We manage a portfolio of 19 companies in uh, six different countries on three different continents. And let's, let's build on that for a second. I think as, as listeners hear about this, you've got a hundred million euro fund. Think about people should call you. And I, I, I sort of know the answer, but I think for them, I'm thinking seed rounds, you're usually a first type of investor in on a deal, but maybe you can highlight a little bit about the characteristics, um, just as a quick, you know, plug for AM Ventures. Not that you need one, because we're going to talk about sort of those trends in a second. I would ask the the audience to call AM Ventures when you have an idea for an additive manufacturing based startup, when you are starting a company, when you have started a company and successfully raised uh, an angel round or an early seed round, and you're looking for someone who can help you to to grow the company, to structure the company, and prepare it for the big rounds in the future. That's probably uh, how we position ourselves. Yeah, so so maybe just one kind of setup before we jump into the um, into sort of the deals that have kind of transpired because we have a fair amount to talk about. I would like to just get. I mean, the VC world's shifted. There's probably it's you know especially in later rounds we know that there's more deals out there than money. But as you get into the seed and Series A rounds, it's a little bit different environment. What are the trends that you're seeing? Because it used to be everybody was coming up with new technologies or new materials. It started shifting with applications. How are things shaking out right now? You're absolutely right, Danny. That shift is still ongoing. I think it was two years ago when we realized the first time that applications are the biggest investment category. 
Um, and actually, that trend continued from 2021 to 2022. The investments in applications alone more than tripled from 190 million roughly in 2021 to uh, more than 600 million in 2022. Um, I assume global investment climate has uh, cooled off a little bit, so it's probably not going to reach the same levels this year. But still, also our most favorite investment category is applications because it's the justification for the existence of, of our industry, right? Without it, nobody sells machines. So um, it's, it is absolutely essential. And it's actually, the, I think to me, it's one of the funner parts of the industry is now seeing sort of new novel ways of, of using the technology. So maybe with that said, um, should we all start transitioning into some of the, uh, the latest sort of deals of the last month or so? I think that'd be great. I mean, the thing I know I think about uh, yourself and AM Ventures is that there's pretty much not a 3D printing startup that hasn't pitched to you, right? So, you know, as much as you have your portfolio companies that you have invested in, you've also seen a lot of pitches from a lot of different startups across the globe. Um, so congratulations on, on your success. I remember when you uh, closed that fund last year um, and I, I seem to recall it was oversubscribed. So uh, well done there. And yeah, we're, we're really looking forward to your perspective because as Danny points out, it is um, such a valuable one. And as it so happens, this uh, episode is probably looking to be pretty financing heavy as well um, with plenty to say on uh, deals done in Europe and across Asia. Um, so Maybe to start with, we'll talk about um, one of the uh, the recent IPOs, which was Farsoon. Uh, they completed their IPO on the 17th of April, just very recently, and they listed on the Shanghai Stock Exchange and they raised $134 million based on a pre-money valuation of $1.7 billion. Uh, this is surely comment-worthy, guys. You know, one of the things I think, uh, just to make sure we, we got that right, that that was pre money is 1.47. They're still at that $1.5 billion mark in terms of what they're trading at. I, it's it's interesting. They're trading at almost 22 times revenues. But if you compare that with sort of the best of the valuations in the U.S. market, um, that would be right now Velo trading at just you know a little over three times revenue. So 22 times versus three times we were trying to advise Arno on this uh, podcast on our prep call that he should just take AM Ventures completely, their whole portfolio public in China. Um, that, that's an incredible valuation. Actually, in fairness, though, to, to Farsoon, the one thing I do think that's interesting is that, you know, they're profitable. Uh, and that's, that is uh, very unique right now. I mean, they're, they're doing 70 million in revenues with about 17 million in operating profit. So, they're doing something right there. I, you know, you, you'll have more insight onto the market and the machines than, than I do, but um, it's it seems pretty compelling. Arno, I mean, what are you saying? Because I think you know, from a standpoint of the Asia market as a whole, I, I know I get focused, and I think you you might be the same way. As we get very focused in sort of the European and U.S. markets, and it's easy to overlook companies like Parsoon. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's a very high level of entrepreneurial activity coming from Asia with the big mass of uh, companies being founded in China, but also super high quality companies being founded and funded in Japan, in Singapore and in, in Korea. So I've, I really like what I see in terms of deal flow. 
Um, maybe yes, in terms of achievable valuation um, uh, at an IPO, it could be interesting to go public in China. There might be some challenges around this um, that are not connected to valuation. Uh, for I you. don't know how you get your money out, but I think you know if if you can get the valuation, that's only half the battle, I guess. If if your money's stuck there, so. That that is true. That is true. But in all fairness, I mean, yes, uh, I've also met uh, Fasoon as a very solid company. Um, the team here in Europe has done a very very good job on on entering the market and and getting reach. So uh, congratulations. That's that that was a good move. Yeah, and I guess uh, just to go to Fasoon, the company, um, they're a you know laser powder bed fusion company. They deal in polymers and metals. Um, and one of their, uh, I, th I think their claim differentiators is that they're a very open platform. So completely open on materials, completely open on parameters. Uh, and, and that has been very much a part of their company philosophy. And as you mentioned, both of you, that they are pretty active in North America and Europe, which is a little bit unique for a Chinese company. Um, because one of the things that we've noticed of, about Chinese companies in the 3D printing space because there is an enormous market there, but it tends to be rather um, insular. So it's it's limited to activity within China. Um, and every now and again, you get a Chinese company that is very um, proactively pursuing markets outside of China, and Asun is one of those. I thought this was interesting from the point of view that uh, the Shanghai Stock Exchange has two boards. Um, one's the main board, um, but then more recently is the star market. And the star market has, was only launched in 2019 and was supposed to be China's answer to the NASDAQ. So it's supposed to be for high-tech companies with uh, higher risk profiles, more volatility, and um, there's a requirement for them to invest in R&D. I think there's always been this backlog. I think this, there was an idea that there was a fair amount of reverse mergers and trying to then take companies public in China what was the subsequent in the US we were they were doing reverse mergers in the US that kind of got shut down and then the backlog and evaluation China this is pre covid so i'm hoping that the star market sort of unlocked the a faster pathway for some of those emerging technology companies but um you, you know i think we're all kind of watching and waiting and i think for those companies that's where i think foreign companies still have issues of how do you repatriate money so it's going to be domiciled chinese companies largely that that play in that uh in that market space which which we're going to talk about th th this would be a good transition we have another company later on the podcast to talk about that'll be related to this one so maybe what we can reconvene on sort of how that uh that all that dynamic plays out with china um, because there's a different strategy there too I, th I think some of the, the notable partnerships have been with Chinese companies and that's been one of the um, challenges for Farsoon is to strike some really solid partnerships outside of China. Um, but, yeah, um, absolutely, let's move on. Uh, the other um, uh, IPO announcement was XJet. Um, and so they filed to go public on the NASDAQ uh, under the ticker symbol XJet on April 21, 2023, this year, obviously. And... XJet are a company that do um, a particle, nanoparticle jetting, so a little bit unique um, in terms of what we look at. You know, it's not laser powder bed and it's not binder jetting. Um, it's a nanoparticle jetting machine. Yeah, this seems like a bold move. And I, and I say that and it's, it's, it's you know, the, the, the public markets aren't really the most attractive place to be. The IPO window really isn't, you know, there, you don't see a lot of companies stacked up to go, you know, IPO right now. 
but the company had 6 million in revenues last year and their cost of revenues were 6.7 million. So they're not making money even at the gross margin line. And if you go the year before in 2021, they did 3.4 million in revenues with really the cost of goods being 4.6 million. So, uh, you know, I think from a standpoint of, is this company ready to be public? Is this going to be sort of one of the next ones? And maybe what I would be curious about is where their market penetration is. And, and I don't know if uh, Arno, you have any insights or, or see them in the market at all, because I I don't have a lot of visibility into seeing XJets sort of getting qualified by key customers and production applications. Wondering if, Cross, you're kind of more the earlier stage side of the world. Have you seen a ripple from XJet at all? I also had a look at particularly the ceramic side of it because that is there's not such a high amount of competition as in the, let's say, indirect metal printing processes um, on, on the ceramic side. Atmatech uh, was acquired by Nano Dimension, and then there's uh, certainly Lithos, which is a very successful player in uh, processing ceramics. I think they have double-digit million revenues, very solid company that is uh, break-even. They have single customers with 20 machines printing 2 million parts per year. Um, I haven't seen such traction on the ceramic side with XJet. So my assumption is that most of the revenues are more on the metal side, but, but even there, I'm, I have not so much visibility of that technology versus indirect, uh, other indirect metal printing processes. And I mean, it's in the end, it's only 6 million revenues at the moment that were, um, uh, built with uh, investing 140 million VC money. That was quite an ex expensive exercise until today. So let, let's see where this leads. I think they still have um, some work to do. I think the question is, is why, you know, revenues of 6 million, why? Um, because from what I've seen of the machines, it's a pretty stable platform and the parts that they produce are pretty high quality. Um, and the only thing I can think of is, you know, they're obviously just not getting machines out there enough into the market. Um, and and why would that be so? And the only thing I can think of is that there's something up with the cost structure, um, either of buying that machine or running that machine that doesn't quite work. Um, and and it is uh, nanomaterials um, that they're using as a um, an input material. You do need to buy the materials from XJet. You can't you know, source them from anywhere, not like the, the Farsoon model of, of an open platform. Uh, so I, I do wonder about, you know, is is it maybe that, you know, buying these nanomaterials, na nano-powdered materials is actually just a really expensive exercise and you can get equivalent for cheaper um, from other providers. You know, I, this is why I just don't know if this should be a public company. I think your point's right. I don't Nanomaterials versus the cost of other materials is, is sort of one problem, but I think the idea that it's just not as simple as we've got a stable machine, go buy it. Production engineers move at the speed of production engineers. And so for these to really take off, they don't control their own destiny, right? This is where, you know, being a public company reporting on a quarterly basis, it takes a long time to qualify the applications, qualify the materials, qualify the process. So it seems like this is a developmental stage company. And I'm guessing those costs of revenues, if we broke it down, isn't just machine sales. I'm guessing there's a lot of material development on R&D work that goes into that. So something tells me this is a long-term play. And I think the VCs, 
Arno, to your point, there's already been $140 million put into the company between 2007 and 2019. And, you know, maybe maybe there is a light switch that if you just add money, it uh, these things will sell off the shelves. I just I haven't seen it with any other 3D printing company to date. And I think this is where, you know, uh, you know, it'll be a fun one to watch how this plays out over the next few months as they uh, are on this IPO track. Maybe we should transition into the uh, non-IPO companies. Definitely. Is it is it just is extra just a matter of uh, investors getting their money out through an IPO? Perhaps. Well, they're going to have a lockup period, right? So that's the one thing. I mean, if the market doesn't receive it well, and if they don't get the support, I mean, this IPO is not it's not fait accompli right now. They have to go out. It's not yeah. priced yet. You know, they're out running around doing investor presentations and a roadshow. So. I would envision that, um, you know, just because they, you know, they've done a filing at this point, they, they have to get this sold to the, to the market. And the hard thing is I can't imagine the investment bankers jobs running around trying to pitch this right now, looking at sort of the nano dimension story, looking at where the stock prices for desktop metal, Bello, Merck Forge, right? All the SPAC companies are, this is not going to be an easy process for whoever's running it, for sure. So my hat's off to them and what they've got to do to, to go out and get it get it sold. But as you say, let's move on to some financing deals because there has been quite a few. Um, so first up was uh, Aris Composites that we have on the list. Uh, they raised uh, $30 million in a Series C venture funding. Um, Aris does 3D-aligned continuous fibre thermoplastics but moulded. Um, so you can can align the the um, the, the fibers, um, which is great for strengths, particularly if you're looking for particular properties in in particular areas. You can custom design according to the uh, properties of the of the part that's required, but does require molding, of course. So I wouldn't say pure 3D printing play here. Um, I think. Maybe, Daddy, if you want to comment on more broadly the uh, the uh, the market on continuous fiber or fiber three D printing, because I think these ones kind of interest interesting from the point of view that the uh, the founders of Aris Composites came out of Arivo. Yeah, look, I, I'm I'm just gonna uh, in full disclosure, I'm a big fan of Riley and Ethan. I, I you know I've known Riley since he was at Arivo. I think they're tackling a very tough problem getting this goes back to sort of where I was on XChat. And I think, you know, I came at 3D printing out of the composites industry a little bit. And, and it's just the qualification times are hard and long. I think they're doing a, a great job. They have an A-list group of investors, uh, NEA, uh, Bosch. When they did the, the second big round that they did, they, they brought a Taiwanese investor in because they do print into bolts. Uh, essentially, they use their preforms, and it's a it's largely sort of a, a molded process as well. Which, by the way, is is sort of an essential to make high value um, composite parts. You know, it, and I think you can see an analog with Ninety Labs uh, and what they're doing, where they print in a mold as well. You know, hat tip to Martin and his team as well. One thing I would highlight here, and it just this is the the reality we're all in in this world, is since this is a Series C one round, they've raised 177 million dollars to date. Now we're, by the way, for everybody in the podcast, we're using PitchBook data, and PitchBook is never perfect. Um, nobody's perfect on, on these these data points, so if it's wrong, uh, we apologize. But uh, you know, at it, it, 177 million to date, the the valuation in the last round on the the pre money was 100 and. 34. So post money was what 164. 
So it, it's just showing that down rounds are sort of, that's par for the course in B and C and D rounds of these days. Uh, actually, that's not even, that's not bad, actually. That's pretty good from a lot of the stuff we're seeing. There's been some really aggressive deals like pay to play deals that we've been seeing lately as well. So um, I'm glad that they got some additional funding. I know they're scaling up. Um, they have uh, a couple different application markets. I think I think their best big feature now is in shoes. Uh, they're doing a lot of stuff with these uh, carbon fiber inserts that make you run faster, jump higher. Um, I should probably get some of those, I guess. I was so, I was hearing yeah. all about it. Great for apparently Riley's a long distance runner. Um, so right into the running shoes side of things. But um, Arno, what is the story with Series C rounds this year and last year? Uh, pretty similar to Series B rounds uh, <laughs> at the moment. I think it's, I mean, the VC climate is challenging enough already. Finding the lead investor that wants to evaluate your company and or define evaluation and terms at the moment is, especially for a hardware company in an early growth phase, one of the toughest things that you can do at the moment. Funnily enough, there are lots of investors lined up who are willing to follow any terms that someone else sets, but finding that big lead that that lays a term sheet and and, and signs it is uh, difficult. And you can you can see the company is right now apparently worth less than they have raised in total. So it's it is uh, a challenge. Company is operating in a in a in a great market, uh, similar as uh, 90 Labs. I, I really like the applications around it. It's uh, a much demanded technology. If we want to save weight and make all kinds of vehicles lighter to drive longer with the same battery charge, that's exactly what what we need. Um, I would love to see a technology that's a little bit more sustainable and doesn't need a mold, though. Um, that would be the perfect uh, solution that that I think everyone was looking for, but. Considering the circumstances, I think both teams of, of Aries and, and 90 Labs are doing a tremendous job at the moment. Well, how about we talk about a Series A? Uh, because Caracol AM um, that are based in Milan in Italy, I imagine they're probably based in that industrial precinct in Milan, uh, recently just raised uh, 10.6 million euros. Um, and they do like a large format polymer system. Um, I think they have their own extruder. And um, they're, they're more of a sort of a systems integrator, but they provide these turnkey systems um, for large fo format polymer printing. Um, and I, one of the advantages that they, um, that they have with their systems is that they can use a pallet feedstock. So a pallet feedstock, if you're moving from, from a, a normal, you know, filament style printer, for these, particularly for these large format printers that use a lot of material, being able to move to pallet as, as the input material is a massive reduction in cost. Yeah, very big reduction in cost. And I think this the speed, when I think about Caracol, right? I, the, when you say systems integrator for, for the person that needs to have this dumbed down as the investment banker on the call, um, the way I think about this one is um, I think really, are, I think they're just really the print head itself on this polymer extruder printer, and then they have some corresponding software. And I wonder, because it puts them into this competitive landscape. I like, by the way, I really like the space because I think they fit in this world of faster than the FDM printers for sort of bigger application space, but it doesn't have to be huge. We don't have to go all the way up to the thermwoods of the world. But I think that there's a, a place for this. I, 
I know that one of the competitors is hybrid manufacturing technologies that also has a robotic arm pellet driven extruder called the Ambit Extrude System. And I know when we pitched that deal, which Nikon invested in, I called this the starter drug for additive. And this is for the machine shops of the world. And uh, yeah, that didn't go over well for a lot of people. But uh, the one thing that it, you think about with these is that, you know, toolings, jigs, fixtures, all kinds of things in the shop can be done very quickly on these very fast, high throughput polymer extruders. And then they can put machining um, tool heads on the, on the end of these robotic arms as well. And in which case you can then machine out a part. So I think there's a definitely a, a place for these systems. And, and I kind of put this into that hybrid category because you got a, you got a very fast pace, um, you know, or speed throughput polymer extruder. To your point, Alex, it's using pellets rather than filaments. So that now all of a sudden you have a much wider array of materials which you can draw from. So you know, I wonder about like Ingersoll and Camozzi, and they've got some uh, extruder print heads. I think they're more gantry based, um, but there's there's a bunch of these on the market. Um, I don't know, Arno, what are you seeing in that kind of larger kind of format uh, polymer 3D printing space? So, so first of all, I'm really happy that there's a startup from Italy um, that has raised a, a Series A. Um, Italy is developing extremely impressively in terms of uh, startups that are, that they are creating and, and that are being funded just especially recently over the last 18 months we've seen a couple of them and uh, also the poster child of uh, am startups from italy is probably robos uh, which uh, has seen a very very nice development um, in terms of large format extrusion that is a wide range of different concepts and, and, and companies out there. And sometimes I must say, I, I get the feeling that we're dealing with the case of great technology looking for an application because right now I, for me, there's no, there's not the really, really big in terms of high volume um, application visible that, that I would immediately address. But that's probably uh, my bias because I'm much more focused on the metal and, and, and smaller plastic side. I, I highly welcome a pallet-based technology in this field because, as you said, Danny, it, it significantly reduces the material cost um, and, and gives a lot of opportunity. And that, of course, also opens the field of potential applications, um, maybe manholes, uh, tanks, um, boat hulls um, are, are some examples. I have not seen a high volume application yet, but I would love to see one. I think that's a very fair point, actually. Every single application I've seen for these kinds and styles of printers has been sort of very one-off um, bespoke products. That's for sure. Um, I think maybe just a Final word on on Caracol um, and as far as a systems integrator goes, it's one thing to buy a robot and maybe try and chuck an extruder on it uh, and and hope for the best, but it's actually extremely difficult to three D print anything successfully if you're going to do that. And so the the point of a systems integrator is they're saying here is we we have the whole entire turnkey system. All you need to do is upload your three D print file, and we'll work out the rest with our Whizbang software. Um, and our excellent hardware uh, and deliver you a, a 3D printed part that's quality and, and, and won't cause you any headaches. And so uh, we, we definitely are seeing a lot more integration with robotics, which I think is really interesting and fun um, because I love the robotic space and I, I've always felt like we should be playing more in that as additive manufacturing people anyway. And uh, yeah, and it, and it definitely enables a whole lot of large format printing, whether that's polymer or metal. 
um, as well. So we get, we've got across the marketplace a number of providers doing this systems integration um, in, to enable you to to have a, a properly printed part. And so there's, there's there's a whole lot of things to consider, particularly in relation to materials actually in print settings and print parameters. But anyway, yes, let's move on. The next one is Quantica, uh, which I think is a seriously interesting company. Um, Quantica are able to do multi-material jetting with their NovoJet uh, technology. And this is a technology that's had a huge amount of development um, behind it. Uh, they just recently announced a new machine. I think it's due for, they're taking pre-orders and it's due for release in quarter four. So uh, read between the lines, hope to see that at form next, I think. Um, but it has seven different print heads. So that means seven different materials potentially. And the print heads themselves are quite special uh, because they specialize in high viscosity fluids, which means that you can now think about material jetting of things like SLA and DLP resins, um, which are not currently possible. And, and SLA and DLP is really dominated by single material technology. It's a single material technology. And so if you think about it, you're getting... SLA and DLP resins in multi-material prints. So, no, I, I think that this is, uh, it's an interesting one for sure. You know, I, there's a moment of pause I, I, I think about when I go on their website and I sort of took a look at it. The promise of multi-material 3D printing is amazing. Like I, I just, uh, you know, I can't help but be drawn into it. And, and I think that maybe this is, I think, frankly, I think they're sort of on the right path. I mean, we're under this new sort of jetting technology here. So it'll be interesting to learn more. I, there wasn't a lot of data on the website of the types of materials that they're using yet, other than they, they've qualified it. So uh, my my only point for them really is with this use of proceeds, you know, I'm guessing they're out looking for application partners now. They have sort of the base technology down that's starting to work. And it's a really, for them, success will be driven by, you know, picking the right application partners to work with here. So, Arna, you see this with a lot of the kind of the technology company side here is sort of you've got this cool technology and sort of what do you do with it? How about your thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, there's a really interesting dynamic in um, photopolymer technology overall. Um, since this principle or, or the, the, let's say, the researchers in this, uh, in this technological niche started to heat up, um, the SLA process started to open a completely new portfolio of material. So the higher the viscosity of a material is that you can uh, process, the higher the performance uh, and um, the generally the better performing the material is. Um, I do like what Quantica has developed. We saw the first prototype of that machine at Formnext last year, which was a really stunning piece of engineering. The team is really cool. Klaus Moseholm and, and Marcel and, and, and Ludwig, what, what they've built over the past couple of years is really impressive and um, really worth watching what what I can say is that this is this is a machine technology for higher viscosity resins um, but what I find extremely exciting is high viscosity resins so working temperatures up to let's say 120 degrees uh, Celsius what what Cubicure offers for example because that unlocks the potential to directly 3d print aligners uh, dental aligners which are the uh, biggest manufacturing case in AM right now or any kind of electronic connectors. So there's a really, let's say, big range uh, in terms of technologies, material jetting for higher uh, viscosity resins and high viscosity resins with uh, 
um, the SLA-based hot lithography-based technologies with ultra-high productivity. Really exciting space to watch. Yeah, and I guess we should probably mention too what they actually raised, which was 14 million euros, um, which was their Series A. Um, and it was 10 million um, that's initially given, but 4 million on on completion of milestones. One of the things about Quantica um, around their business model is, yes, they're selling machines, but they're also selling their printheads, which I, I kind of wonder in, is a move that might be potentially like shooting themselves in the foot a little bit, um, the 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 beauty of the product is the printhead, um, but they're in addition to selling their own machines with this printhead, they're also going to be selling the printheads to other OEMs. Yeah, that's that's isn't the first time I've seen that model, uh, and and there's times where it makes sense. I think especially if you have an application space where there's other machine makers that have processes that aren't um, fully enabled by just the printhead itself. They have other applications, so you may want to print something, and you may have other application spaces. So, and they're high throughput machines. You may find that a modified NovaJet in somebody else's machine is a way to enable that market. So, I'm not, as a matter of fact, I think it's a really good way to go. I think if you take it where you, you started, Alex, where if you're just selling somebody else the same printhead and everybody's making the same stuff, we're, we're sort of you know, now confusing the market. That's, that's one way to go. But if you're enabling a market or new applications, where maybe they just need to print two of the you know, materials and there's something else to go with it and you weren't going to address that market without it or you'd have to have two machines side by side to do it and you can now have a higher throughput machine so you can custom build an application development project. They may be under the right answer. I don't know. Yeah, it's um, to me it, it tastes a little bit like everyone is, is trying to copy what, what Google is doing with Android software and the uh, Pixel phone, right? So they want to have the platform where they optimize it for, and then they also give out uh, the software to to other vendors. And that's a similar approach in in the hardware industry that you're developing your own printer, but you also want to supply the competitors with a with a printer to to maximize the return. I'm I'm also not exactly convinced that this it works as easy as in the software business that you are competing with your uh, future customers. So I'd much rather prefer to staying either a, a provider of hardware components or uh, building machines and, uh, and and maybe providing parts, um, but at least focusing on, on what you want to do instead of stretching out as wide as possible, which is always a very big challenge and a risk for a small startup that, that should be focused on, on what they are best at. Yeah, I mean, and not sort of value adding on the innovation that it, it is really core to your machine. Um, I want to move on because um, I do love to tease Danny every now and again about his um, like for 3D printed shoes, which he's shown me a couple that he's worn. I'm not sure I'm so convinced. Um, but Zellerfeld uh, is a shoe company, 3D printed shoe company that has recently raised $15 million of seed funding um, in a deal led by a founders fund. So it just in February this year. So pretty um, impressive figures there and also a really high quality fund. Are we still in for 3D printed shoes, Danny? Well, I'm going to tell you, I've worn these. Um, I have worn them. And uh, man, I'll tell you, they were very, very comfortable. So I'm going to give a, uh, a big shout out to that team for putting some really comfortable shoes together. Now, styles and aesthetics, um, that might be to, you know each to their own. 
you know, I think that, um, you know, for, for the sake here, I don't know fully what the business model is going to be for them. If they're going to build their own branded shoe company or if they're going to enable other brands, it seems like they're trying to build a brand. And so I, I have an example I'm going to use here that, you know, it seemed like every VC back in 2017 had a standard uniform in Silicon Valley and it was a pair of Allbirds with a Patagonia vest on. And um, so you look at Allbirds, who's now a public company, they raised $200 million before their IPO. And and I think their total combined after the IPO of total raise that went into the company was you know, close to $450 million. That company today is doing $289 million in revenues and they're not profitable. It's tough. I mean, building the consumer, direct-to-consumer brands is a very uh, expensive pathway. Um, so if that's the path, they've got a lot more money to raise in their future. Um, but to your point, you've got some very well-known, well-heeled VCs behind them. Um, can this scale? The one thing I do think is sort of cool on the selling point on the green side of the world is that you know, these are print-to-order. There's It's a single material. So there's no gluing. It's fully recyclable. Um, and, you know, there's really no human labor uh, that goes into it. So if you think about sort of the aspects of where you can do this, how this scales, I think there's a, a cool component that this is a little different than some of the other shoe technologies that are out there. But um, but so I, I think they're on the right track for sure. I think they're definitely paving a, a very fashion forward sense. Go on their website. There's some really kind of crazy designs that are out there and um and uh you know i'm sure there's going to be more as they develop along this process further so arno are you one for 3d printed shoes are you a fan um let's say 3d printed components i i quite like i'm not exactly sure well i generally i am not exactly sure if the customer really cares what the manufacturing technology is behind <laughs> really is. good point um <laughs> i want a shoe that looks cool and uh, as long as i like the design i don't really mind the manufacturing technology um Sellerfeld, i i do like their design capabilities and the brand that they've built it goes along what I what I said um, earlier. I I do love companies that are extremely focused. And what what Sellerfeld is building up right now is, um, if you want to look at it uh, critically, is a great brand that has only one single technology supplier, um, or you have you they building a, a tech company that only has one single customer. Um, I would much rather prefer if I were partnering with such kind of company prefer to to focus on uh, what what they are best at I mean we all know people in the industry that uh, have other approaches that that are producing uh, technology that can produce shoes and do not want to limit themselves to only one brand so that is what what I love to see focus on core competence well I'm going to transition our LFL but before we do, I'm just in case anybody from Zellerfeld's listening, I, I will make a deal with anybody at Zellerfeld right now that Arno, Alex, and I will wear your shoes at the AM Ventures hey. Forum Next, the Forum Next party. If, if AM Ventures is hosting a party, we will wear those shoes, all three of all us. Right. And um, just contact us. We will we'll make sure. And I, I think go for the brightest colors and the craziest ones. And we'll, we will definitely wear those uh, at Forum Next. All right. I'll I'm give all you in. one party. I'm all in. 
<laughs> All right, we're in. Let's let's uh, move on. Alex, why don't you take us to uh, Wayland? All right, we're gonna we're gonna yeah completely um, f- flip over now in terms of three D printing companies. But I will say I will say I know Zellerfeld. At least they're applications based, right? They're focusing on the applications and, and some amazing fantastic designs, no doubt yeah, about yeah. it. And yes. uh, and amazing um, partnerships in the fashion space as well. So really, really high profile, and they also were worn by um, yep. A lot of celebrities in at Fashion Week, uh, and so on. So anyway, one one brand that has not had much success in fashion, but success in many other market verticals, is Wayland Additive. Um, so fantastic, innovative company based in the UK. Um, I actually went out and visited them a, a couple of years ago. Now uh, they're out in Huddersfield, and they are uh, e beam company, so electron beam powder bed uh, system. So they make machines. And what is so interesting about them is that, um, or and I think even about the eBeam space, is that uh, eBeam was held up um, in a number of key patents by Arcam um, for, for many, many years. And it really sort of uh, constrained the market space, I feel, because there was just a total lack of competitors and then therefore, you know, a lack of um market share and therefore lack of knowledge sharing around eBeam and comfort levels with eBeam. Um, and so some of those key patents fell off and we, we've now had a couple of competitors uh, join the market space, which has been great, JL and Freemail, you know, are two that come to mind. Uh, Wayland is another one. But the interesting thing about Wayland is that their genesis was not um, – necessary it was it was not necessary for those key patents to come off because the way that they process with eBeam completely circumnavigates that need um, for the, the the patents around the pre-sintering step um, and the inventors of this process uh, they call it new beam um, really come out of the semicon industry and they really they really have been able to incubate Wayland within an existing parent company which was really around precision engineering so anyway congrats to them they raised uh, 4.6 million pounds and uh, they had all of their existing investors um, continue in for the next round um, but they also had london-based uh, strategic investor matreya discovery um, who are particularly i don't think they've made any investments in 3d printing to date this is their first one but they are um, investing in defense technologies I've only heard good things about the team and got to meet them in 2019 at Formnext. So uh, congrats and glad they're continuing to move that technology along. Yeah, absolutely. Same here. I mean, the, I, I really like eBeam technology and its possibilities that you have on the quality assurance and process monitoring side that gives some really interesting um, uh, potential to uh, to increase the quality and repeatability of parts that are coming off these uh, systems. I know that Wayland knows a lot about manufacturing and uh, industrial processing, so I'm also glad to see that this story continues and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what they will show us in the future. And I think that the uh, the main thing about this raise is they did actually uh, raise another round in 2019, uh, which was three million pounds. And this raise is going to enable them to really scale. So this is very much a signifier for um, the amount of uh, throughput and customer orders that they've been receiving. They were previously operating very much under a make to order model, but uh, now with new capital, um, they're going to really try and focus on streamlining operations. I imagine they'll probably be focused very much on supply chain and also 
um, on maintaining their their gross margins. Um, so by, by being able to streamline those operations and, and getting that scale. So anyway, let's move on. Um, the next one's really interesting, Boston Microfabrication. So in 2023, they raised an undisclosed amount of Series C Plus from Dragon Rise Capital. Um, what do we know about Dragon Rise Capital? The, their last round was read by Shenzhen Capital Group. So they're Chinese investors. And interesting company. I think they have a great CEO here in the US. By the way, very experienced. He was the CEO of Z Corp back in the day before they, as they got acquired by, uh, by 3D Systems. You know, what they do with their cash is going to be the hardest thing, right? If it's internal growth, that's one thing. And, and that's fine. As soon as they decide to go out and do things like make investments or do acquisitions, they need to work through things like CFIUS, which is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the US. I know the UK has similar parameters. And, and I was going to ask Arno if there's anything similar where we scrutinize uh, foreign investors. And you know, we went through this even with Nikon on all the deals we've done there. Or and by the way, if we have AM Ventures invest in the US now, that's CFIUS, right? So you're familiar with it, Arno. So I think it's just going to create a problem because China is obviously heightens the, uh, the you know, alert levels of the US bureaucrats in our government who decide that these are uh, things that they need to be monitoring. So It'll be interesting. Good CEO. They have a good company. I think the fact that they're well capitalized gives them a lot of things that they could do. If not for the Chinese investment, I think there's a really, you know, really interesting play here for them. Absolutely. I mean, being a German investor that has invested three times in the US uh, and twice under CFIUS uh, conditions, I can only imagine the pain that they must have gone through uh, taking this ticket. Interesting move. It's interesting to see the amount of uh, investment from, from China uh, going into the US, but also in, in, into European, yeah, in European AM startups. Uh, yeah, let's see what comes out of this. Very exciting times. I think just to, to talk to the tech for a sec, it's a really high accuracy, high precision DLP system, basically, that enables them to print to the micron scale. And so the one thing I'd say about Boston Microfabrication, or BMF for short, is that um, they really focused on, they or have focused on medical products and consumer electronics. They have not focused at all on the defence market. And I think that's quite intentional. And uh, the other thing about BMF is that they, they were Chinese-based or a Chinese-based company who expanded then to America and to Europe. Um, and they have offices around the world now. Um, it, it is actually a really impressive tech and I think that they're doing the right thing and, and totally agree with you, Danny. Their um, CEO, John is uh, John Kowala, is, is really super experienced and very knowledgeable. And so I think that actually they're 100% on the right track with what they're doing. Next one is Linkster. They raised a Series A. Uh, that was a 1.5 million euros. Another European company, Arno, for you. Um, that was in 2019. And the last round, they raised 4.4. There you go. So Linkster, what do Linkster do, Arno? You know more about them than, than we do. Yeah, may, may, maybe it's a French company that is moving in a really, really interesting space, printing silicone. Still quite an untapped market, even Big chemical giants have tried to set foot in that, but have not managed to develop a technology that can deliver repeatable results. To date, I think the only uh, competitor to Linkster is Spectroplast uh, from, from Switzerland that is using a DLP process um, to uh, print silicone. Stunning detail levels, really impressive productivity rates and addressing applications like 
audiology, hearing aids, ceilings, gaskets, cushioning devices, um, any kind of damping uh, devices. Really interesting margin um, business. Linkster, as far as I know, is using an FDM-like process. So they are extruding the silicone, which has some disadvantages on the detail resolution um, and the intra-layer uh, connectivity. But super exciting technology a whole bunch of applications in a field that doesn't have too many players, but a lot of demand. So that's a very high potential market, in my opinion. That's true. And one of their first customers was Airbus. Uh, so, you know, that's really a, a great, you know, guarantee for, for you know, future success, I would think. Um, I want to move on because this is our last one. And I reckon it's the most interesting one of all. Uh, Fluent Metal. They raised $4.36 million, which was led by Pillar VC. Fluent Metal is currently in stealth mode. They are an MIT spin-out, and uh, the the usual suspects at MIT are behind this uh, team at Fluent Metal. Um, There's a couple of patents that are published online um, from what we can tell. It's a a sort of what they call a microwire is mentioned as the feedstock. Um, with a couple of different heat sources. That, so the patents are pretty all-encompassing, um, but heat sources such as laser induction coil or a plasma arc, um, but not a whole lot of information other than that it's a droplet-based metal AM technology. And so when we were talking about this uh, in our prep call, we were like, oh, well, that sounds a lot like a Vader Systems. Um, but I think it actually specifically is not like a, a reservoir collecting molten metal and then dropping. It's it's direct droplets from the wire. That would make sense. I, it, it's hard to know. I mean, looking at this, I, it makes me think about Melissa Orm's old patents and what she used to do at UC Irvine. And so it's, um, but using just a wire feedstock, it, you know, I'm curious at what kind of resolution, what kind of applications they're going after, but um, looks like they've got uh, certainly a good start here with a first funding from Pillar. So wish them the best success uh, when they're in stealth mode. It's hard to really have a, got a lot of good comments on it. I've heard this recipe before, a uh, brainchild of uh, John Hart with a German uh, <laughs> entrepreneur who was running the company and coming out of stealth mode. I think that was exactly the recipe that we saw from Vulcan Forms uh, last year. Now the German gentleman behind it is Peter Schmidt. Um, who is running Fluent Metal. We really don't get much information from from the website, but I had the pleasure of uh, speaking with Peter uh, once or twice, who's a really uh, interesting gentleman that has a very ambitious and very impressive uh, ideas on, on where he wants to take this. So I'm convinced that we're going to be hearing a lot more exciting news and also really interesting applications coming from that technology. All right. Well, uh, we have one acquisition on the books uh, so far for this podcast, and that is that 3D Systems acquired WeMatter. WeMatter is uh, SLS printer OEM. Interesting thing about this is 3D Systems already had SLS systems as part of their product portfolio. I would see this as being an addition to their their people side of things. They were already a, a, a distributor for WeMatter um, as of one year ago, and so I think that the impression that I get is that their team, the team at WeMatter integrated really well in with the 3D systems company culture and an acquisition just made sense. It seems like we should just hit the rewind button to episode three when we talked about Nexa 3D who bought XYZ's SLS printers in March and they had bought 
previously NXT factory back in uh, the, I think, August of 2020. So, but I, I look at this, I mean, is there something going on now? It's two episodes in a row that we're bringing up SLS <laughs> acquisitions. And, um, and we've got somebody who might have some knowledge on SLS companies in here who could be an investor in a company called Centratech. So I don't know, uh, what's going on here? Yes, uh, that's uh, that's me. Um, of course, uh, it's difficult to comment on that because, of course, I'm biased and I'm convinced that I'm invested in the best ones. Um, of course, the reason behind this is that the big guys have realized that they are selling their SLS equipment at a very high price and that there is technology out there that can do the same job for a much lower price. Integrating an entry-level SLS technology into your own product portfolio that can help to lower the entry barriers for the customer and then upsell them to, let's say, at a later stage to a more expensive uh, technology not necessarily a more productive uh, technology. I, I know a lot about the cost per part and the, the output per time that Sintratech, for example, can achieve. And that is certainly extremely impressive and uh, is can compete very, very well with the really big machines. Um, so it is an interesting movement. Um, what you can also see, I mean, the let's say the announcements never had any price tags um, and the uh, posts about the recent deals on LinkedIn were not extremely, let's say, optimistic and uh, full of excitement. So um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how these uh, transactions happen under which conditions, but it's consolidation time. And I really like that now the uh, the big guys have realized that they do need entry-level technology because there is very affordable technology out there that can do an equally good job uh, compared to uh, to the big, extremely expensive kit. Yeah, I have to say I'm I'm super impressed by the Form Three from Formlabs. I mean, they're another, you know, very low-cost, you know, entry-level SLS printer that's out there. Um, I did notice about WeMatter that they have a it, it's CE certified, you know. So um, you know, I know being being from Europe, you'd appreciate what that means having something uh, with the CE mark on it uh, means it's a lot easier to sell. And then these systems also are very much sort of a, an office friendly style of printer. Um, so again, playing to that you know entry level plug and play type printer option that. 3D systems is going to have in their portfolio. All right. A um, little bit of a comment just to round us up on the public markets. Um, we did have our quarter one results published. Of course, we we love getting Troy on to talk about that, but he was just on last episode. So we'll, we'll get him back for, for a later episode for the next quarter. Any impressions that we got from the quarterly results of 2023? Boy, it's a little bit of a bumpy ride. I'll, I'll just kind of rifle through some of the ones on the equipment side. I mean, Stratasys, 3D systems were both down 8% year over year. Desktop metal was down 5% year over year, whereas Mark Forge and Bello were both up uh, year over year. Mark Forge, I think, was up 10% and Bello 120%. Of course, don't read too much of it because Bello was starting at a much smaller amount. So, um, yeah, being so up 120% some... from last year is uh, probably more, more, more emblematic of, of where they were last year than... Right. Well, that's on revenues now of $26 million, which ought to tell you sort of, you know, they were uh, you know, much lower last year. What was that? Like more like 12 or something along those lines. So, um, 
so it's it's not as big of a, a jump as one might expect. It's a it's a couple printers for them, but it's still positive news um, overall for Velo. Um, you know, we can dig into each one of these um, a little deeper, but I'd say you can just see sort of the softness in the capital equipment market when all the big players. I mean, they're the better data points to really look at from a revenue per, you know perspective that they're all a little bit soft right now, and that that's just probably reflective of the whole industry and selling capital equipment in today's market. Yeah, absolutely. But on the services side. Um, there was some much more positive results. Uh, Proto Labs uh, had a had a really good result. Um, they they beat their estimates and have revised their forecasts upwards. Um, probably fair to say, you know, Proto Labs, just like many of these other services type companies, they're not pure three D printing companies. They do offer things like you know CNC machining, um, you know sheet metal forming. Uh, they're all about being able to provide all types of manufacturing, but three D printing are a core part of the is a core part of their their businesses. Um, probably exception there was Fathom, which, you know, had revenues down, but that's perhaps not surprising. I think Fathom is just a fundamentally different business to the others that are there, you know, Proto Labs, Zometry, Shapeways. We're all up. They're all up. The, the one negative side to this one is all their margins were slightly down with the exception Um uh, of Shapeways, their uh, actually their margins went up a little bit. So not only their revenues went up, but their margins went up. So good for Shapeways. But I think you know there's a little bit of a trend of I'm glad that there's um, you know positive indications that there's more prototyping, there's more development, there's more uh, people using the service bureaus that ought to show that the pipeline uh, is growing. I think when you see these down markets or tougher markets, you just see the competition amongst everybody heating up, and that's why margins are starting to. Uh, to erode a little bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, and maybe adding to this, um, I spoke with lots of folks in the industry uh, recently, also especially at, at Rapid. I mean, the uh, growing revenues are also uh, quite a sign for current current economic uncertainties and uh, threat of a, of a recession that the OEMs do not necessarily want to invest in their own production capacity and extend what they have in-house, but much rather outsource uh, these services to service bureaus um, to and, and weather out the, the storm and uh, wait until we are in more, let's say, predictable and, and reliable times again when uh, companies can invest again and don't have to wait until things are clearing up like now. Yeah, I think that's a really good insight, Arno. Thank you for that. One of the things that um, I just want to touch upon before we wrap up, um, Mark Forge, their CFO, Mark Schwartz, who we did actually talk about quite specifically in episode three. Troy Jensen had a lot of really good positive things to say about the the Mark Forge CFO. He has left Mark Forge. Uh, it was effective basically immediately. He left on May 15th and he left after the earnings call. And a note about Mark Forge is that they did receive a non-compliance notice from the New York Stock Exchange um, they've been on a, a, a sort of a 30-day average of below $1 for their share price. Um, so you have to be above $1 to, to maintain your listing on, on the New York Stock Exchange. I think things are about to get really interesting in Mark, at Mark Forged. Well, they're going to have to do something, right? I think you, you had indicated in that same press release that are even open to things like reverse splits. So reducing the number of shares increases the share price, maybe solves that problem. Um, we've also haven't heard a peep at a nano dimension over the last, uh, since the last podcast. And I think we, we may have said it in the last podcast, but it seemed like if they were more strategic in their thinking, they wouldn't have started with Stratasys and they should have started with Mark Forge as a, as a target. So 
I don't know where that is going to go. I think we've said it now twice. So we're only putting that on the, on the board so that if, uh, if you see it happen in the next two months, uh, you heard it here first, but, um, just, uh, no, we, we have no idea what's going to go on. I think they've got a lot that they've got to wrestle with and they've got to get that either stock price up and how they do that is, um, is sort of TBD at the moment. Yeah. And I just want to reiterate that in January, they filed an 8K and it was in relation to exec severance packages. And I just think something is happening at Mark Forge, but we shall see um, what happens over the next few months and how they get that share price up over $1. So I think we're about ready to round it up. Um, Thank you so much, Arno, for joining us. It's been such a pleasure and super appreciated your perspective. As we've already said, there is so much on that, you know, seed series A um, rounds of, you know, all the startups in the 3D printing industry um, always think of of AM Ventures in terms of who they've got to pitch to. So um, we know that you know a lot more than you let on and uh, ever take credit for in this industry and uh, so appreciative of your insights. And and thank you as well, Danny, for joining me yet again. Uh, Thanks for persisting with me, Danny. This has been episode four of the Printing Money podcast. Hey, Danny and I got really good feedback at Rapid recently. Um, there was a lot of people come up to us and say that they were really enjoying what uh, they were they were listening to. Um, we love to hear it. If you've got any other suggestions, let us know as well. We're super open to that because, of course, this is just a new podcast and we are definitely taking all your feedback on board. But if you liked this episode, please comment, leave us a rating or something like that because, unfortunately, these days algorithms speak louder than humans. So um, do, do a good thing for us and, and leave us a rating or a review, please. Uh, thank you. This is episode four of the Printing Money podcast. You've been listening to Printing Money, the insider's perspective on finance and investment in the 3D printing industry. For more information about what you just listened to or for past episodes, visit www.3dprint.com.